I'm, my name is Andrew. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And um, I will try to speak loudly as I was asked. So, um, can, you, can you hear me? Okay, good. If not, just say, oh. um, Anyway, I am an alcoholic, and I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, and um, thank you, ladies, for coming to support me, and thanks for a wonderful potluck. It was really, really nice and warm and welcoming. Um, I guess I'll just kind of start off in the beginning what what it was like. Um, I kind of was one of those kids that never felt like I was part of this planet. I always thought I was kind of from an alien nation, and... I knew that I was going to leave this world and go back to the mothership somewhere else sometime. I did. I had like this wild imagination that just imagined all these, you know, crazy things. And um, I, I kind of, I came from a, a divorced family and um, a lot of friction in the household there. But I didn't suffer anything, you know, devastating as a child. I mean, I guess... One might say divorce was devastating, but I mean, I didn't come from an abusive home. I didn't, I didn't get beat. I didn't come. My parents weren't alcoholic. Um, we, you know, did have some fluctuations in household income, but you know, I never was homeless. I never went without food. I, I had, you know, um, plenty of clothes. So I, I didn't have a lot of like these hardship stories to blame my alcoholism on or anything like that. Um, I, you know, my mom was was very loving, um, continues to be a loving um, mom, and, and a really huge part of my life, a huge inspiration to me is my mom. Um, but when I was about, I'd say about 13, I started kind of spinning out of control. <laughs> my little attitude was getting worse and worse, and, and my mom was a single mom, and I'd see her going to work, coming home, taking care of us, keeping the house straightened up as much as she could, and, and doing the same thing the next day again and again. And I just was like, man, I don't want to ever do that. I want to go get loaded. <laughs> you know, it just was like... I mean, somebody said, here, let's do this. And I'm like, okay, you know. I mean, there wasn't even a thought process to it. And so I think my first drink was at 14 years of age. And uh, my first uh, experience with alcohol was a blackout drunk. And the next morning, um, my mom was there with a bottle of vodka on the on the dining room table. And she's like, you want a drink? You drink with me right now. Let's see you do it. And, and at that moment, I was so sick from the alcohol the night before, I was like, oh, no, no, you know, but um, I, that, of, you know, that didn't stop me <laughs> from continuing on, but so, um, you know, I, I, I call myself a garbage head, if it was there, it, if it looked like it might alter my perception of reality, I took it, didn't matter whether it was a powder form, a liquid form, um, you know, if it was going to get me out of self, I did it, and so, um, therefore, I just call it garbage head. And it's so interesting to me, you know, because to be such a person that would put any kind of chemical in my mind and not care, you know, what was what was the outcome, just that it was going to be something out there. And, um, you know, not to not to have any self-care at all. You know, that that's kind of how I looked at it. And um, when I was probably about 15, my little friends started going off to rehab. And soon my mom was like, you got a problem. And so there I went off. Um, you know, at that point I was living on the streets. 
I was stealing from my family. I didn't care whether it was a checkbook, a piece of jewelry. If it wasn't pinned down, it was going in my pocket, leaving the house. If I, if my lips were moving, I was lying. And that was just the way I was. And, and my family, you know, I, I mean, they loved me, but they couldn't deal with um, this kind of behavior in their home. So um, one, I, I was out, I actually was living with, you know, various friends, and I called my mom up because I needed to come home and take a shower and get some food and, and rejuvenate a little bit. And, and she was just like, you need help. I am going to bring you to a detox center. If you want to come into this house, you need to go get some help. And so I was like, okay, that's fine. You know, I, I just was kind of like, all right, I'll go get, you know, whatever you say just so I could take a shower and get some food and, you know, feel a little bit more human again. And um, so we went to a detox center, and I got to see my first person with wet brain. And um, I was 16 at the time, I think, and... Um, the person just kind of sat there and mumbled and just, you know, I mean, they didn't, they weren't able to, you know, make any kind of comprehensible sounds. And um, as a kid, you know, I was like, man, you know, it, it was really kind of like I took notice of that. And um, I remember, you know, uh, my boyfriend at the time was like, oh, precious, you don't belong here. And I'm thinking, you have no idea, <laughs> you know, where I, I do belong here. And I knew that I really belonged in that detox center, um, even though everybody else was much older than I was. Um, so I, I went ahead and after that, they said, you can go to a rehab center um, after this. And I said, I said, that's fine. I'll go to the rehab center. And so I went to a rehab center that was kind of geared towards teenage you know, delinquent kids, and um, and it was in south, southern New Jersey, and um, in that rehab center, I kind of was one of those kids, that, and I didn't even know that this was an issue, but, you know, the counselor and I would sit across from each other, and, I, and I'd have my little weekly meeting with the counselor, and he'd say, so, how are you doing? And I'd say, fine, and how are you? And he was just like, I can't break this kid, you know? I don't know what it is. I just can't, just, just and I just thought, I, I was just, I didn't know there was anything wrong with that response. I didn't know I should be having some exhibit of emotion about being in a rehab center. I was like, you know, this is kind of cool. I'm meeting new friends, new people. We can smoke here. This is okay. <laughs> and so anyway, about the third week um, of the four-week program, uh, I don't know, something he said just pisses me off, and I just threw a chair. And he was just like, whoa, good. We got some reaction going and so they're like, okay, you're going to stay an extra couple weeks. We've got some things going in the right direction here. So I ended up staying there for 42 days instead of the uh, 30 days. And, um, of course, I, you know, was having relationship issues with people in the rehab. You can use your imagination. And um, they got kicked out. I didn't. <laughs> so, anyway. stays. <laughs> Anyway, <clears throat> so I decided, you know, between the rehab and the halfway house that I might go to have a little party time. So, um, hello party time. And I remember this so clearly. I was driving my um, stepfather's car that looked like a cop car. It was like one of those old um, Buick 
big blue boat cars. It looked like an old cop car. And I'm driving. I'm in Irvington, New Jersey. Not a nice area. And I am so wasted. I can't figure out how to drive straight so I could get out of the parking spot I was in somehow. So I kept banging into the car behind me and banging into the car in front of me and banging into the car behind me, banging into the car in front of me. And then I hear this lady from this, you know, window above. She starts screaming these curse words at me, and I just, I'm like, I'm scared. I'm like, I am not going to get out of here alive. And I just started praying. You know, talk about that foxhole prayer. I'm like, please, God, please, God, get me out of here. I'll never do it again. I'll never do it again. And so anyway, I got, I got back in the car, took some deep breaths, had a prayer like I had, like I do today, you know, take some deep breaths, pray, and got back in the car, and God miraculously got me home. And uh, the next morning, my stepfather was just like, what happened to the car? And I'm just like, I can't believe what happened to your car. I'm like who would have done that, you know? And he was just like, you know, they, and they knew better than to even try to pinhole me into telling the truth because they could have done, tried that till they were blue in the face. It wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to admit the truth. They knew that, and so they just were like, forget it. So I went to this halfway house, and, um, and I learned a lot of uh, stuff there about Alcoholics Anonymous. I learned that it was a really nice place with really nice people and a good place to go when I was ready. And uh, I wasn't quite ready then. Um, in fact, the halfway house kicked me out, and there I sat on the curb with my garbage bag full of belongings. You know, <laughs> my mom came and picked me up. And um, I ended up living in the uh, Jersey Shore area. Um, and uh, my ex husband, who was my boyfriend at the time, said, I can't continue watching you kill yourself. So I said, that's fine. I will move. So I moved to New York City, and uh, that was the end of my um, drinking. I was blacking out um, in New York City by myself, no more family, no more boyfriend to take care of me, nobody to pick up the pieces of, um, you know, where, where I was ending up. And so I got really scared one night, and uh, I, I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous. I knew where to go, and I picked up the phone, and I, I called up AA. And I was living out in Queens at the time, and they're like, you know, where, where, what's your zip code, and, you know, where do you want to go to a meeting? I said, well, I, I would like to go to a meeting in the Upper East Side of Manhattan. <laughs> they're like, you live in Queens. Why? <laughs> I don't know. So I like, well, I that's where I'd like to go to a meeting, please. <laughs> so anyway, they gave me the number or the address and I ended up in the Upper East Side of Manhattan at this place called um the Jan Hus uh uh church. And they had meetings kinda like, you know, like seven, eight meetings a day and, and um another place around the corner was called the seventy nine tree workshop and they had, you know, probably meetings going from six AM until midnight every day. And so it was a great place for me because I was 19, um, and so I needed a lot of activity in, you know, in my getting sober. And, you know, I, I mean, I was so scared that by getting sober I was going to be completely bored and have nothing ever, ever have any fun ever again. And so it was really an, a, a great place. I mean, I, God just kind of put me right where I needed to be to... Um, to be a part of, you know, and there was a lot of activity, like I said, but I, I wasn't quite, quite convinced, and about, I don't really know what it was, maybe a week after 
uh, getting sober, my I had gotten a sponsor. I actually met with her that day, and she was she was awesome. She would sit in the meetings, and she would never share. And in New York City, there would be a person that would they call it qual- qualifier. They would talk for twenty minutes, and then people would raise their hand. Whoever wants to share would raise their hand, and he you know pick on people. And I'm sitting there, me me, you know, my hands up in the air. Come on, come on, come on. I got I got lots to say. You know, I got really good stuff. And and uh, the guy's just like uh, you and you. Not you, 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 you. <laughs> Finally, this light, this nice lady who was like a grandma, kind of in my 19-year-old mind, um, you know, she finally raised her hand. He's just like, Maggie, would you like to share? And she was just like, no, call on this girl over here. Come on. <laughs> she, she can't sit still. <laughs> so that, that's how she became my sponsor, you know. She was just like, I can't sit next to her. She's too wild. <laughs> so... Anyway, I, I met with her after the meeting, and, and we talked, and that and I heard her so clearly, pick up the phone before you pick up a drink. Pick up the phone before you pick up the drink. Well, I was still working in a little nightclub. So, went to work that night, and I was following the, the drinks in my hand, like, with my nose, going, you know, like I could, like, I was that close, and uh, and I had all kinds of tricks, you know. I mean, I would, oh, you don't like that drink? Great! You know, you know? <laughs> I, mean, just, I mean, I was very savvy at getting lots of alcohol while I was working. And uh, anyway, I'm sure I probably wasn't that savvy. <laughs> probably people knew what I was doing a lot. But I um, that night, I decided I was going to go out to, to uh, the after-hours club after work with the after-hours party people. And I was sitting at the bar, and the bartender said to me, you know, you're probably going to uh, get drunk drinking those Diet Cokes. Because I was sitting there drinking Diet Coke, Diet Coke, Diet Coke. And, and I was just like, uh, or what, maybe it was Tab at that time, I don't know. Anyway, um, he, so I was just like, that's fine, you know, whatever. So I just, I knew, you know, I was just like, man. I just, I really wanted a drink. So I walked outside the bar. I heard my sponsor's voice saying, pick up the phone before you pick up the drink. I knew if I picked up the phone, she would tell me not to drink. So I'm not going to call her, you know. So I walked back in the bar. Everybody else was, like, pretty drunk by that point. So, I mean, if this doesn't tell you I'm an alcoholic, I don't know what will. I'm like, I need two black Russians because I need to get caught up, you know. I mean, it just is like, okay. And so that night, I did not black out. That night, I could not get enough alcohol in me. That night, I could not get drunk. And it was kind of like I kept drinking. I mean, and I woke up, and I was yucky, and I felt sordid. I felt like trash. I looked like trash. I just felt terrible about myself. And the people I was with were looking at me as though I were trash. That's that incomprehensible demoralization that we talk about in the big book, you know, where I was looked at like I was trash and I felt like it on the inside out. And um, I got, I decided, well, I'm just going to go to the meeting. I, I went over to a payphone, called my sponsor. I said, you know, this is what happened. She's like, man, we just met yesterday. I told you, pick up the phone before you pick up the drink. What, what happened? I was just like, well, I'll talk to you about it later. But, you know, so she said, okay, I'm going to have some people meet you at the meeting. And um, I got on, I, I was going to take the subway uptown to meet um, a couple people that she knew at the meeting. And uh, I really wanted to jump into those subway tracks because I felt like I couldn't stop. I felt like I can't stay sober. 
but I can't live like this anymore. You know, I was at what they talk about, the jumping off place. I can't live like this, but I can't stop drinking. And this, and I was scared. I was really scared. And so I looked at that train and I could see the light coming at me, you know, and I'm just watching it and I'm just getting closer to the track. And it was kind of like a presence just pulled me back. And I, and I took those steps back. The subway pulled up, doors open. I got on and that was my last um, drunk. And that was October 24th, 1988. And um, I'm really, really grateful for that today. I am so grateful. Um, I love this program. Love this program. This program saved my life. I mean, there's not much more I could say about that. Um, it not only saved my life, but it gave me a life. You know, people, when I got here, they talked about losing, you know, the wives, husbands, families, bank accounts, houses, cars. I didn't have anything. So I didn't have any of, I mean, I had a family, but I didn't have any stuff. I didn't have, like, a car, a marriage. Um, we, I didn't really have a real job. I mean, it was just like there wasn't a lot to lose. So I gained. I came and I got. You know, I, I got new things. You know, I got a job where I didn't have to work around alcohol anymore. Um, a job where I could go in and, and feel good about doing what I was doing. And... Um, a job that I had to actually go on interviews day after day after day to get, you know. And it didn't come easy. I think I was sober about 90 days, and I got my first job, my real job. And and um, and then, you know, but once I got that job, you know, I, like, I took it for granted. And I start doing things like, um, you know, calling sick or say, oh, somebody robbed me on the subway. I can't show up to work today. You know, my, and my sponsor's like, man. I had to watch you try to get that job for 90 friggin' days. I'm going to kill you. She's just like, you know, I hope you lose that job with your attitude, Missy. She was not easy. And, and, I, and sometimes I sponsor people, and, and the people that I sponsor know I'm pretty, I'm pretty soft. But every now and then, you know, I kind of, I, I say, I tell it like it is. I do. I tell it like it is. I try to do it with love and compassion, but... I was telling somebody the other night, I was talking to my sponsor, and, and we were talking last night about nobody babysat me. Nobody said, you know, it's going to be okay. They're like, no, how will you lose that job that you work so hard for? You want to make up lies about it, you know? And so anyway, but that's that's kind of the sobriety that I kind of was came from. And um, when I was, I, I got married to the guy who couldn't watch me drink anymore um, when I was 21. Um, for the wrong reasons, my apartment got robbed in New York City. I wanted to get out of New York City, so I decided marriage seemed like a good option. And he was moving to Louisiana. <laughs> he was in the military. I'm like, well, you know, we'll get married. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, I didn't say I was well at two and a half years of sobriety. I was just, I was sober. I was working on it. <laughs> I was getting better. <laughs> but I wasn't completely well. That was for darn sure. And uh, But um, when I was about five years sober... I had my son Arthur, who um, lots of people know about Arthur because he just he was the love of my life. And um, when I was uh, five plus years sober, we moved to Fort Huachuca, Louisiana, or Louisiana, Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And um, I ended up living down there for ten years and being uh, very active in Alcoholics Anonymous there. And um, for me, I've, no matter where I've moved, and I went from New York to Louisiana to Fort Huachuca to this area, I've always gotten a sponsor 
they may not have been the right first sponsor in the, in the group, but, but they were the w- most welcoming, you know, or whatever. And then, you know, as long I, I got whoever I was supposed to be with. But I've never gotten without a sponsor. I've never gone without a home group. I've never gone without um, doing some kind of service. Um, and I've never, gone, I've never stopped going to meetings. Those have kind of been my constants in my sobriety. And... Um, <clears throat> And it's always made me feel plugged in. You know, I mean, it's been hard. You know, I didn't feel instantly connected no matter each of the different places I moved to, but I felt at least I was accountable to somebody else if I asked them to be my sponsor and they could see me and look me in the eye and and, um, see whether I was not doing well or doing well or what have you. And um, when I got got divorced... um, probably, um, I don't know, seven years sober. My son was a couple years old and he had a lot of medical problems. And at first I kind of went through all of this, you know, like I could not accept these medical problems. I'm like, you know, God has been so good to me. How come he's not taking care of my son? I just don't understand this. And, um, you really went, you know, I go to meetings after meetings and talk about acceptance and, 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 uh, and the struggle for that. And, and, um, and meanwhile, you know, going to this specialist and that specialist and, and learning more diagnoses and, you know, having to pick out a wheelchair and just all of this stuff in sobriety that I just was like, I, I you know, I was gre- learning about grieving, grieving uh, the kid I thought I was going to have. And then learning, you know, all of this new lingo in the medical community. And and uh, I would just keep coming to meetings and just keep talking to people and keep doing step work, you know. And no matter what, I kept doing step work. He was probably about, oh, gosh, five years old when he was um, put on hospice for the first time. And um, maybe younger than that. And... and uh, I, you know, I, what I knew to do was you need to do, I needed to do a four step to clean up anything left so that when he died, I can go through the grieving process clean. You know, that just, I just knew that the step process worked and that I needed to get all cleaned up, you know, you know, so that it could be a pure grieving process and walk through the remaining part of his life, you know, um, as, as, as spiritually whole as I could. And, uh, I, I mean, what a gift that this program has given me to be able to do that. You know, he didn't end up dying then. Um, you know, I went, I started going through nursing school. I turned into be that single mom, you know, and, uh, had this, you know, child with special needs and I decided, well, I'll, I think I'll just go to nursing school and I, you know, I don't really want to be a nurse, but okay. <laughs> so, you know, talk about lack of gratitude, <laughs> you know, <laughs> so I go and, I take the entrance exam, and I, like, get in, like, by that, <laughs> like, the skin of my teeth. And I'm like, I guess I'm supposed to do this, God, you know. And so I just kept going. And even when he was on hospice during my second year, the, you know, people in my life were say, are you going to keep going to school? How are you doing this? And I'm just like, I'm going to keep going until God tells me otherwise, you know. And he hasn't told me to stop. I'm with Arthur enough, you know what I mean? It's not like I'm not with him. I am. I ha- we have study groups at my house so that we can all be with Arthur, you know, um, during his pro- process. And I ended up completing that, and uh, Arthur kept on living. And I got remarried to somebody else. You guys probably, he's, he's in this program also. And so that's really um, beautiful that we get to share this fellowship and the uh, solution together. Um, 
And it's hard sometimes, though, because alcoholics, we have huge egos. And so when there's an argument in the household, it's get ow. You know? <laughs> but thankfully, <clears throat> we've learned how to um, discuss with a conscience. Because I can't say a whole lot today that I'm going to regret without feeling it really, you know, significantly later and then have to um, make amends for that, apologize for that, or what have you. Try to fix it in any way I can. So um, it really, this program has really kind of, you know, developed my conscience where I can't get too far off track. Um, in fact, last night I had a talk with the lady that um, have, was, is having a very difficult time in this program. And, and I just kind of knew that I wasn't as patient with her as I, as I should have been, as I would have wanted to be. So, you know, I, I prayed about it and called her. And this morning we ended up talking and, and just told her that, you know, I'm sorry I'm not perfect. I, I wasn't as patient as I would have wanted to be with the situation you're going through. And, um, and you know, I just would like for us to kind of fix this uh, rift that we've got going on. And it's so important to me to have those conversations with people instead of avoiding, um, you know, and, and having real relationships ruined because of ego, because of justification, you know, because I can justify, oh, I was, I will tell you right now, I was completely justified in what I said yesterday, but the spirit that I came with it was completely not right. You know, it didn't, didn't fit well in my heart. You know, justified or not doesn't fit right in my heart. So um, I can't even use that as a measuring stick anymore. But um, when Arthur was about 10 years sober, we ended up moving to Avondale, and I would bring him to meetings. And, and he was kind of the, he kind of called him the bullshit meter because he'd come to a meeting, and if somebody was really off course, you know, he would just start laughing. He'd be like, <laughs> you know, he would be this kid in a wheelchair that ne- did not speak, didn't walk. You know, was on oxygen with a G tube. But if you were full of it, that kid would start laughing at you, and I just would just be like, "Damn!" So I would like try to take him out of the meeting real quick, like, Shh, "Arthur, it's okay. They're sick." You know, and he'd be like, like, but he went to meetings with me like constant. In fact, that when he, if he wasn't with me, people would ask me, you know, where's Arthur? Is he in the hospital? I'm like, no, he's home with the babysitter. It's okay. You know, he's, I can go to meeting by myself. Um, but he, um, you know, I, something just said to me that he, he's supposed to go to school. He never went to school because he was always had pneumonia and lung problems, but he was really healthy for a long stretch. And Somebody I'd met said, you know, you should really put him in school. And I thought, well, maybe he's bored. Maybe I'm really boring him. And so, um, and a lot of my communication with him was through God, you know, because I would pray. I would ask God for direction on how to act, you know, whether he should be on an antibiotic, whether he should, you know, have the surgery, whether he should do this or that. And the doctors would tell me one thing. I would go into prayer and be like, no, we're not doing it. (laughs) They're like, what? We're the doctors. And I'm like, no, (laughs) Arthur wouldn't want that, you know? And I just kind of um, grew to love what we call now palliative care, if anybody's familiar with the term, but it's basically, you know, um, comfort instead of aggression, you know, just being comfort instead of that. And, And that's what I learned with him was to love him exactly as he was unconditionally, exactly where he was with comfort and not to enforce 
society's rules on him and how what society says he should do or could do or whatever or what the doctors say he should do and and we sought out a lot of alternative you know stuff and um anyway so i prayed about it and and the answer was to send him to school and and and, uh i don't know it about three weeks after he went, he got really, really sick, and he ended up dying. And he was on hospice, you know, at that last kind of time period. And and through prayer, I just kind of came to, you know, when I let him go to school, he knew I was ready to let go. And that he knew I was like, okay, you know. Um, and my husband kind of has his own theory that it was his last hurrah. He just wanted to go to school on a school bus. <laughs> and that was his last hurrah. So, um but this program has given me a spiritual way to look at things and, uh, and a spiritual way to live through grief um, and to be, you know, all the tools that we learn here uh, and through that, you know. And, and it's awesome because I can take that in this program and when there's another person in this program that's grieving over a significant loss, I can be there for them. I can talk to them. I can say, I understand. My heart was ripped out. And there's still never going to be, it's, I'm still never going to be the same person that I was before he died. I'll always be a different person. Um, he'll always be a part of me, but, and, and I've kind of like learned my own new way of thinking, you know. People would say, oh, you need to get over this. I remember my dad within the first, like, you know, a weekend after he died, oh, you know you need to get over this. And I'm just like, hmm, I don't think so. <laughs> get through it not over it you know i will never you know and because for me getting over it would be saying he's no not in existence anymore and he'll always be in existence for me um but anyway after he died i kind of had this god kind of nudge you should go back to school (laughs) you should become a nurse practitioner and take care of these kids and uh so I said, okay, call my sponsor. I'm like, you know, I don't feel like this is a choice. I think this is what God God wants me to do. And so I just went back to school. And uh, it's amazing when I look back at the things that I, that have happened in my sobriety when there wasn't, it wasn't like a big decision. It was like, no, this is what I'm supposed to do, you know. And, and when I go and do those things that I'm supposed to do, they happen. It's not a huge struggle. I mean, yeah, I'm a whiner. I mean, I'd be like, every time there's a test or a paper, I can't do it. You know, my, my husband and my mother would have to listen. I can't do it. They're like, ah, how we've heard it for years. You can't do it. You know? <laughs> but I got, <laughs> but they know. You know, that's what I say. That's what I do. And then I do it and it's done and I get a good grade. And that's just the reality. And, and um, today I work with people that are dying. And uh, I go into their homes, and I get a, get to be a part of other people's homes and, and order stuff that was ordered for Arthur, order wheelchairs and hospital beds and oxygen and, and um, palliative care treatment for people. Um, and, and I get to come from a place of knowing and seeing I understand, you know, I... And, and say, you know, these are the choices I would make for my mom. These are the choices I would make for my dad. Or, you know, if we get real close, then I'll kind of share a little bit more personal. But um, it's it's nice to go to a job and to go with God and to ask God um, on a regular basis, you know, please go into this home with me. And um, I, I love my life today, you know. I, I, I used to say that when Arthur was alive with ease. And it's been a really long time since I've been able to say it. And I don't think I've actually said that for a really long time, probably since before he was born, that I was able to say that I love my life today. Um, probably about a year and a half ago, maybe two, I was sitting in a meeting in New York City 
um, kind of a girl's trip to New York, and I, I just go into being a meeting junkie when I'm in New York City. I just go to meeting, 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 meeting. And my friend was just like, okay, I'm done with all these meetings, you know. But it was a meditation meeting in which it was a real 20-minute meditation. And, you know, I'm used to our meetings out here, five minutes of meditation. You know? So after five minutes, I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, what's going on? Why are these people waking up here, you know? And uh, But I kept on, okay, back to being quiet. And it just was like, you need to do foster care. And I'm like, I don't want you. <laughs> and God's like, you need to do foster care. I don't want you, God, you know. And, and But no matter where I looked, in the paper, on TV, in the radio, you know, this person I meet, that person I meet, this patient has foster kids. It's like bombards my life. And I, so I mentioned it to my husband. I'm like, mm, I feel like God's telling me to do this. He's like, okay, let's do it. I'm like, okay <laughs> you know and then through that the fear you know and and i and i remember sitting in a meeting and and as you could tell meetings are a big part of my life <laughs> i get a lot of intuitive thought in meetings and um i was sitting in a meeting another meditation meeting and i just i was like my brain was screaming to god i'm scared i'm scared you know and i heard it so clearly from from that that inner voice i got this you know, and that's how my higher power speaks to me. You know, I got this. You don't need to be scared. I got your back. It's going to be okay. And so um, in October, we got this little child that um, definitely <laughs> is definitely not what my expectations were going to be for a life with a four-year-old. You know, I Arthur never talked back to me. He never, he never ran away when I was angry. <laughs> he never... <laughs> <laughs> he was sweet and innocent <laughs> and this child is too but in in a you know in a in a way they can verbalize what he's thinking <laughs> and uh it's just it's been an interesting process you know to go through through that and and to get to grow on a daily basis because and and that's what's happening for me is I get to continue to grow I get to say okay I'm not so patient I need to grow in this area, God. You know, I'm not so understanding. I need to grow in this area, God. And, and you know, get to look at my character defects on a regular basis. I mean, he's a huge reflection of my character defects for me. And, um, and that's good. It's good. I mean, a year ago, I was saying, my house is too quiet. Now, yesterday, I was telling my sponsor, my house is a little too noisy, <laughs> you know. But it's really good for me to keep growing and, you know, I don't want to be stagnant. I know my higher power doesn't want me to be stagnant and to be, you know, um, just kind of an even, you know, I need to keep growing. And I'll just say a couple more things that this program, you know, my sponsor had me do this thing uh, a few years ago. She's like, write down all of your dreams, you know. And I was like, okay. So I wrote down all of my dreams. And one of them was to hike the Grand Canyon rim to rim. And I did that. And one of them... I don't know how this ended up on the list. It's not really a dream. It was kind of more of a dare. But what's to do stand-up comedy? And I did that. Um, another one was to go to Alaska. And I ended up going to Alaska for two years to return my scholarship for my nurse practitioner degree. Um, and, I, you, know, they're, they're, you know, the big ones are to have peace of mind, which is as long as I'm connected to my higher power and I'm, and I'm doing the best I can to plug in, um, that doesn't, it's not a constant, but it's there enough that, um, that I can say it's, it's, uh, it's more peace of mind than not peace of mind. Um, so I guess I'm telling you that because it's been my experience that no matter what, if you stay sober, 
things will get better, you know, no matter what. I see people come in and they, you know, they're, you know, struggling with jobs, home, kids, security, all of those things that we come in here with. And all I can say is don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens because it's going to happen. You might not get the perfect job that you want. You might not get the family back. You might not get all this stuff, but somehow, some way, your life is going to get where you can actually live in it and feel good about it. And uh, I don't know. I mean... I, like I said, I love this program. Um, I get really pissed off when people don't feel the same way I do about the program. But um, I, I, uh, I, I have to like let people also have their opinions and beliefs and attitudes. And, and, um, and I'm, I'm real grateful for what this program has taught me. Um, and, and it's allowed me to just be the best person I can be for today. Next year, that might be a completely another person, you know, but for today, I can be the best person I can be. So thanks for letting me share. That's it.